0: service to welcome those of you that may be visiting for the first time and welcome you especially to our church today and if you would be so kind as to take a moment and fill out our digital visitors visitor card and you can find that on the little card that should be printed uh, in front of you there's a QR code and you can scan that it looks like the one on the screen behind me and that will then take you to a digital card that you can fill out for us and that gives us the opportunity then to Uh, follow up with you if you have any questions about our ministry. You can also visit our website, gracenc.org, and there is a Contact Us button, and you can also contact us through email as well. We would love to hear from you and get to know you just a little bit better. I invite you, if you would, to find the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to jump ahead a couple of chapters to chapter 24, and we are going to continue on in our study of the life of David and just a very brief Synopsis of where we stand, we have skipped over, not because it's not important, but just for sake of, of uh, continuity through our study, we have skipped a couple of chapters in which we find King Saul relentlessly continuing to pursue after David and desperately trying to uh, find him for the purpose of taking his life. And as I was reading through chapter 24, I started thinking about some of the more I guess, famous, if I could use that word, famous enemies that have have existed throughout American history. And arguably, two of the most well-known enemies that we would find, at least in American politics, would be two men by the name of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. If you're not familiar with them, the enmity that existed between these two men actually began during the Revolutionary War, when they frequently disagreed while serving under a man you probably heard of by the name of George Washington. This hostility deepened in 1791 when Burr, whom, by the way, Hamilton described Burr this way, as an unprincipled man, both as a public and private person. And he claimed the Senate seat previously held by Hamilton's father-in-law. And so during that time, there was animosity between these two men and then during the 1800 presidential election Hamilton actually opposed Burr very strongly. In this election Burr won the vice presidential nomination and he carried the state of New York which put him in a sense on the national scene. Well curiously a little history here for you in American history under the electoral college procedures of that day the electors never casted their votes Correctly, In fact, they casted votes for both Thomas Jefferson and Burr, and they tied. And what happened was, because they had equal number of votes, it was left then to the House of Representatives to break the tie and to decide who was the President of the United States. Although Mr. Burr maintained that he would never challenge Jefferson, Jefferson actually didn't believe him. And the problem arose when Hamilton determinately opposed Burr and was a strong reason why Mr. Jefferson became president. Well, you would think that this runoff election between these two men, which, by the way, historians call a true continental crisis at that time, is that clearly Jefferson won and Burr became the vice president of the United States. But that's not really what put these two men over the edge. In 1804, Hamilton, strongly once again, opposed Burr's bid to become the governor of New York. And when Mr. Burr would not offer an explanation, uh, when Burr rather demanded an explanation, Hamilton refused, and so therefore the two men decided to resolve the issue in a good old-fashioned duel. So on July 11th, 1804, Alexander Hamilton and U.S. Vice President Aaron Burr engaged in a famous pistol duel in New Jersey. The shootout left Mr. Hamilton with a mortal wound in his stomach, but it was the last, as one writer said, it was the last of a long line of personal slights and political disputes that extended back over some 25 years. Here's my question for you today How do you treat your enemies? How do you treat those that, for whatever reason, you find it difficult or maybe even impossible to get along with? I've said this for a long time. Jesus has said, love your enemies, and I would assume he says that. By the way, it's all throughout scripture. It's found in multiple places to love our enemies, to treat our enemies kindly. I would suggest to you that that is there and repeated so many times because scripture assumes that there are going to be people in our lives that we would unfortunately have to call enemies. Now, how do you respond to them? Do you challenge them with duels? Hopefully it's not with weapons. But maybe it's a duel of words, arguments, fighting, or maybe you're just a little bit more mature than that and you decide to have a duel of silence, the cold shoulder treatment, just shut them off, cut them out of your life. Or maybe, hopefully you don't do this, maybe even more horrifically, is you engage in a duel that takes place over the lovely place called social media. How do you treat your enemies? How do you treat those that don't treat you well? Now, maybe it's not a long-term enemy, somebody you've been arguing with, debating with for some 25 years in the case of Hamilton and Burr, but maybe there is someone that just gets under your skin. They just irritate you. You find them difficult. You find them complicated. You find them impossible to get along with. Well, as the Apostle Paul says, he tells us that as much as it depends on you, you are to live peaceably among all men. In other words, you're not supposed to be the problem. If there is a conflict between you and another person, these conflicts begin to be resolved when I stop and take a hard, honest look at my own heart, at my own life. Where am I at sin? Where am I the problem? Where am I adding to this Conflict as much as it depends on you, live peaceably among all men. But how do we live with the ones that choose to not live peaceably with us? King David didn't do anything necessarily to quote unquote deserve the treatment that Saul was giving to him. He didn't deserve to be hunted down. He didn't deserve to have men waiting outside of his house to assassinate him. And yet, this is the exact situation that the man after God's own heart, who was far from sinless, but certainly a man of great character, finds himself on the short end of this stick in which there is a man who hates him enough that he wants him dead. So what is David going to do? Well, from chapter 24 of 1 Samuel... I think we have three very important lessons from the life of David that we find, how do we treat enemies? How do we treat those that dislike us, those that choose to maybe even speak out against us? How do we, how do we deal with them? Well, let's take these one at a time. And let's first of all, number one, look at a very simple example here from David that we find we must never seek revenge, Notice what happens. Chapter 24, 1 Samuel, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, there was a short interlude that Saul was trying to chase down and kill David. And then he has this problem with the Philistines. And so he's got to divert his attention back to fighting against his enemies. But once that is over, and David, by the way, has already run and he's hiding for his life. When this conflict with the Philistines is over, Saul is going to return to his lifelong project at this point in time. He is going to pursue David. It says, then in the end of verse 1, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. I'm going to throw a picture up here just for you for a moment, just so you can get a, a visual representation of what this area looks like. This is the area called En Gedi. I've been there. Maybe some of you have been there and you have seen this. With your own eyes, but I at least wanted to give you a picture of what this looks like. You'll notice a couple of things about en Gedi. Number one, it is a place that was sort of an oasis. There was a lot of um, places you're going to see in a moment. There's sheep there that are being fed and cared for. You also, or more importantly, going to notice there's a lot of mountains. There is also a lot of caves. I can remember walking through this area and our guide at the time was saying, imagine yourself as David or as any other person living during this time. And you're walking through this valley, you're walking through this area, mountains on both sides, caves on both sides. And guess who often hid there? Bandits, people who wanted to kill you, people who wanted to take your life, steal your money and cause you bodily harm. But this is the very place that David goes to find Refuge? Why? There's plenty of places to hide. This is like the ultimate place for hide and seek. Good luck. You go hide somewhere in one of these caves and it could be many days or years before you are able to be found. And so David here runs and he goes to this place that is called En Gedi. Verse 2. Notice Saul's reaction. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wilder goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. Okay, so Saul takes 3,000 men that, in fact, were trained, well trained soldiers. These were sort of the elite soldiers of that time, and he comes to this place called En Gedi, as the text tells us. There are sheepfolds there, so there are shepherds there caring for their sheep as Saul is, is hunting um, this man named David. And there was a cave there, or many caves there, and Saul went to, the text tells us, relieve himself. The King James clean, cleans this up a little bit. It uses a Hebrew euphemism where it says he Uh, Let's see, I believe my mind just went blank there. He he translates, he uncovered his feet. There you go, I got it. He uncovered his feet. This was a euphemism to clean up the language a little bit, use a little more poetic language. Hey, I never thought I would say this from a pulpit, but Saul had to use the restroom. And in that day, there was no porta-potties, there was no bathroom stop there was no circle k to go use the restroom what have you instead Saul, random quote unquote randomly we just heard about god's sovereignty i use the word randomly semi sarcastically to say under god's sovereign supervision saul wanders into a particular cave to relieve himself you got to go you got to go i suppose And he goes on and it tells us here, Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. He picks the cave where David is hiding, and he's hiding there with his men. Now, how often have you ever walked into a very dark place out of the sunlight? What happens to your eyes? You can't see, right? In fact, a little history for you, the reason that pirates wore a a patch over one eye it wasn't because they all got their eyes stabbed out in, in sword battles. It was because when they were attacking a ship, and they would go underneath one of their eyes that had been covered, would be dilated and prepared to go into a very dark place under a ship. They would shift their patch to the other eye that was done. They could what? They could see. They could go into this dark place and not be blinded by. Darkness, And so imagine you're Saul. You've been out in the sunlight. You're walking through this area and you walk into this cave. You have no idea that there's anybody in there. You certainly don't know the man you're looking for is in there. You just have to go to the bathroom and you walk in. It's going to be pitch black. So David has at least, at least two, if not three advantages. Number one, Saul is blinded by the darkness. Number two, he is in a position of vulnerability. And number three, Saul has no earthly idea that he's present, that he's there. The advantage clearly is in David's corner. Now, what would you do in this case? The person who has hunted you, made you run, threatened you, put a camp outside your house and waited for you to come out so he could kill you. He's had his own son recruited him to have you assassinated. And you've got this golden opportunity. He doesn't know you're there. He can't see. And he is incapacitated. And you're David. What would you do? Well, thankfully, the text tells us what David does. It says, now David, they're sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall be, as it shall seem good to you. Now there is a huge problem with that statement. The biggest problem is this there is no place in Scripture that we ever see David given this commandment. It doesn't exist. Now, there's one of two things happening here. Number one, either the men of David are simply saying, look, you're going to be king. This is the opportunity now that God has given to you. It is your place, your opportunity to kill him. That's option number one. However, I lean toward option number two. Option two, what these men are doing is a good old fashioned case of misapplication of scripture, ripping a verse of scripture out of its beloved context. This was likely a commandment that was given toward another enemy at a particular time. And what the men of David are doing is they are pulling it out of its context and they are applying it to something that is wrong. It's inappropriate. They are misusing scripture. We do this all the time. One of my favorite ones that we misuse on a very regular basis is where two or three are gathered together in your name. We use it out of its context all the time. The context, by the way, is church discipline. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a worship service. He's not talking about a prayer meeting. He's not talking about that. He's talking about church discipline. We rip it out of its context all the time. It seems to me that what David's men are doing is, again, what we tend to do, is using scripture to say what you wish it said. Making scripture say what you, as one writer had said years and years ago, I remember him saying, jolly well wish it said. David, here's your chance. We're going to use the Bible to defend what we want to do. We want Saul dead. The problem is, God never said that to David. Thankfully, David isn't easily persuaded by the conversation of his men, of his soldiers. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Again, to be painfully redundant. Saul doesn't even know he's there. He doesn't even know he did this. Now this may seem inconsequential to you, but by cutting off the corner of his robe, this is an outright insult to him as king. You don't do this to a king. You don't do this to a person. The outer robe would have been a a, a garment of dignity. And especially with Saul as being the king over all of Israel, this certainly would have been a picture of Saul being the king and leader over all of Israel. But David cuts off the corner of his robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of of Saul's robe, he falls under immediate conviction. He knew he was wrong. He knew that his actions against the king were inappropriate, they were wrong, and more importantly, they were actually sinful. And the Holy Spirit of God brings conviction upon David to the place that he recognizes and realizes that his actions toward the king were inappropriate. In fact, uh, one of the verses that came to my mind was Exodus chapter 22 verse 28, where the Old Testament law said, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. David acted very rashly. Clearly, there was at least some influence by David's men upon his thinking. Thankfully, he didn't kill him. Thankfully, he didn't put his sword through his heart. But instead, he does cut off the corner of his robe. And David now falls immediately under conviction, which leads me to yet another consideration for us this morning is I wonder how often we fall under conviction, even for the slightest of disobedience to God. I wonder if our conscience is as sensitive as, as David's is in this text. I wonder how often when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon us that we just shake it off, we just push it aside, and we just continue on doing what we want to do. Or if we're just so accustomed to the sin that we are engaging in repeatedly that the conviction of the Holy Spirit doesn't even register in our hearts. David, being a man after God's own heart, clearly is not a perfect man. But he is a man that is in tune with the Holy Spirit and sensitive to the conviction that God brings upon his soul to the point that David's heart is smitten within him. Notice what he does. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He's the king. Like him, think he's a good politician, doesn't matter. He's the king. Apply that to your politics, please doesn't matter. It matters that we respect those who are in positions of authority. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. He knows absolutely nothing. Not a thing. He is completely unaware of how David had attacked him. Now, This leads me to some applications for us. David's conscience, as I mentioned, would not allow him to take revenge upon his enemy. And yet, when you are given the opportunity to retaliate against your enemy, what do you do? Do you take it? We hear the phrase all the time, It's so been used so often, it's been so familiarized in our culture, but people say something to this effect all the time. I don't get mad, I just get even. And the reality is we never get even, we always go way above and beyond what that person did to us. And what happens is you then get into this ever escalating back and forth problem like Burr and Hamilton to the point where you're pulling out guns and shooting at each other. And so the, the reality is, when we say we don't get mad, we get even, we often, I've heard it said this way, we kill a mouse with a hand grenade because we want, okay, let's just call it what it is. We want revenge. That person wronged me. That person did something to me. That person humiliated me. That person lied about me. That person assaulted my character. That person, that person, that person. Keep going. Whatever's on your list. Keep going down the list, down the list, down the list, down the list. And then at the end of the list, we justify ourselves in saying they deserve it. They deserve to be retaliated against. And yet, Scripture tells us again and again and again. Let me just give you four examples. There are many, many more, by the way. I'm just going to give you four of them. Proverbs 20 verse 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait on the Lord and he will deliver you. David could have made the argument, I'm supposed to be king. Here's my chance. You know, God, you're, you're taking a little too long. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of living in caves. I'm tired of being chased by this madman who wants me dead. Here's my chance. Kill the king. I'm the king. Story over. David doesn't think that way. Instead, he does not repay evil. He waits for God's timing. This wasn't God's timing. Even when his own people are ripping verses of Scripture... Either they made up or ones that were given to another situation, even though they are applying this to the, David doesn't listen to that, nor does he fall into the temptation of repaying evil for evil, taking revenge on Saul. Instead, he waits on God and God's timing and what God will do. Proverbs 24 verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Oh, how often do we do that? You see on social media, your enemy is going through something that is horrific and terrifying in their life. And in the back of our little sinful mind, we're thinking, yeah, they're getting exactly what they deserve. Thank you, God. Sin. It's wrong. It's hateful. Proverbs says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. It's not how we treat our enemies. We don't treat them that way. In fact, Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. It's easy to love people who like you. It's easy to love people who are nice to you. It's far more difficult to show love and compassion and beneficence to people who mistreat us, who have spoken out against us. They don't have food to eat, let them go hungry. They're getting what they deserve. Not according to Scripture. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them water to drink. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the common adage of the day that Jesus was addressing. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain and the just on the unjust. You know, I was thinking this morning and I want to say this before we run out of time. The vast majority of unbelievers are never going to pick up the Bible and read it on their own. I'm not saying that that never happens. But unbelievers are carefully watching how people who claim to be believers treat people. And when we act like, sound like, retaliate like the world... You're giving a very wrong impression of who God is. You are giving people the impression they may not know a thing about Jesus Christ. They may not know a thing about his death, burial, and resurrection. They may not know a thing about the fact that God's word says there's one way to heaven and it's through faith in Christ and Christ alone. They may know none of that, but they know you. And if they know that you claim to be a believer and yet your heart is filled with hatefulness and your heart is filled with a heart to retaliate against those who sin against you, you are giving those people a wrong impression of who God is. Now notice what David does. Because he does not... Retaliate. Instead, notice number two, that we have to, number two, if you bring that one up, we have to leave judgment to God. Notice verse eight. By the way, there's a lot of dialogue in there. We probably read every verse for a take of time. There's a lot of dialogue. It's unusual. It's an unusual text. A lot of times in the Old Testament, you don't get as much dialogue back and forth between a couple of characters, Uh, but you get a lot of it in the remaining part of chapter 24. But notice, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Think about that for a moment. This man, Saul, wants David dead. David just cut the corner of his garment off his robe Saul had no idea he was there. Notice what David does. He says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father? See the corner of your robe in my hand? (laughs) Notice he's holding it up for him. Look, look at what I have. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Notice what David is saying. I will not cause you bodily harm. This is, this is up to God. This is in God's hands God will judge. God will handle this. God will take care of his will and his time and in his way. I am not the one to make that decision, even though I could have. This is conviction in action, by the way. David just didn't sit in the cave and think to himself, man, I really shouldn't have done that. This is a man of such character that he goes to the very man he sinned against in an attempt to make this right between him. In fact, he tells him, I could have killed you. People were telling me to kill you. But in my soul of souls, I knew that this was not what God would do. Why? Because you are, in fact, the king. Now, notice David's clear repentance. It led him to the place that he promised that he would not seek revenge against the king, that he would leave this between God and and Saul. It was up to God's opportunity to judge between David and Saul. So we have to leave judgment to, to Saul. Here's what happens very often. When we have somebody who dislikes us, and not only do we find it difficult to love them, We find it very tempting to play God. We find it very tempting to take action that would bring judgment upon them, that somehow we are the one who is to mete out judgment. We know that Scripture tells us multiple times throughout the Bible that judgment belongs to God. I like to say it this way. There's a God in heaven, and it's not you, and it's not me. And when we see enemies seemingly getting away with something, we see our enemies seemingly flourishing, as you find in the Psalms. We see this picture that they're getting away with it, and and they're going to prosper even though they're sinning against me. Unfortunately, that may be true from a human perspective, but in reality, it is God who will hold them accountable for their actions, not you. And what happens as well, what destroys us, is when we put ourselves in this place of judge, we put ourselves in this place where we are the ones to hold them accountable, I would submit to you that the person's life that that ruins is yours. Because that person goes on and lives their lives. David wasn't going to do that. David wasn't going to take revenge, but he also understood that there was going to come a time in which... God would judge Saul for his actions. Now, the final lesson I want us to learn this morning might be the hardest one. In the final verses of this chapter, we find that we must pray for our enemies and pray for mercy upon them. Why? So that they may come to repentance. Notice what happens. I'm going to read 16 down to the end of the chapter. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? What's curious here is up until this point, he's been calling him son of Jesse, almost in a derogatory term. There is, albeit momentarily, a shift in Saul's demeanor. And he says, is that my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. To which I say, you think? For you have repaid me with good. Didn't deserve that. Whereas I have repaid you with evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe?" doesn't even seem to make sense. Why would you do that? Notice Saul continues, So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Saul knows it's over. He doesn't know the where, the when, the how. But he knows that this man, David, is superior to him. Spiritually, and he understands that one day David is going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now Saul makes a final plea to David. He says, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. This was common. When a king took over for another king, he killed everybody eliminated everybody, all of his family, all of his friends, any connection with him. And David swore to this, swore this to Saul, then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now this is a curious exchange for many reasons. I want to start at the end and then we'll apply this in just a moment. It's curious to me that it seems, on the, at least on the superficial reading of this, that there is some level of repentance on Saul's part. Saul very easily could have pulled out a weapon. Don't forget, he's got 3,000 men with him that very easily could have killed David. There is at least a pause in Saul's life that he says, David, I understand you're going to be king. I understand that you're going to one day take over the position that I've held. Just please don't eliminate all of my people, which Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, there you go, He becomes the one that David blesses uniquely because of this promise that he makes to King Saul. But it's curious at the end of this, while Saul does not kill him, Saul goes home, but David continues to hide. Why? Well, because we know Saul. We know how he has behaved before. And we understand, apparently, David read something in his demeanor that there was a reason to still hide from Saul. Now, we've talked a lot about how we treat our enemies. Do we seek revenge? Do we take it upon ourselves to judge them? Maybe the hardest part is we see this in David's actions. Do we take time to pray for our enemies? David's actions here is what leads Saul to the place that he doesn't kill David. It leads him to the place that there is at least a moment in which there is conviction that comes upon Saul to the place that he does not take David's life. Paul says it this way. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. We've already read that in Proverbs. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, Paul writes, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now Apostle Paul is directly quoting Proverbs twenty-four, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. And the question is, what does Paul mean? What does Proverbs mean when it talks about the fact that I'm doing good to this person and I am returning their evil with good, and I am now heaping burning coals of fire on his head? What does that mean? That God's going to judge them and wipe them out? That God's going to evaporate them with some kind of holy fire that he shoots out of heaven? Is that what he's talking about? I don't believe so at all. In fact, that wouldn't even fit the context. It certainly wouldn't fit the context in which the Apostle Paul is quoting this verse. He's talking about treating people well, overcome evil by doing good. The phrase, heaping coals of fire on their heads, means that I am treating them kindly with the prayer that it will lead them to conviction, that will lead them to repentance. This isn't retaliatory. This is praying, by the way, the prayer starts with you. Where am I sinning in this problem? Where am I sinning against God? Where have I acted out against this person? I have never to this day met a truly innocent party. None, never, zero, not one. There's always enough sin to go around. So it begins with me praying for my own spiritual condition. Where have I sinned against this person? Where have I violated them? And then sincerely praying that my good will take root in their hearts to bring them to the place that they fall under conviction and they repent of their sin. Years ago, I've said this before, but I think about this every time I preach a message remotely like this. Years ago, I had some people in my life that were very difficult, very difficult, and I was walking through a bookstore one day, and I was pretty discouraged. I was pretty, I don't know, angry, I suppose. And I'm walking through this bookstore, and I can still see it like it happened yesterday, and there on the shelf was the book that was going to change my life. And it did, but for not for a reason I expected. The book was entitled, How to Deal with Annoying People. I didn't care how much that book cost. I bought it. Didn't even look at the price. Got home, and I started reading that book ferociously. And here's what I learned. The annoying person is you. In this case, the annoying person was me. And the whole premise of the book is dealing with annoying people starts with you assessing you. Where are you the problem? Where are you failing? Where are you sinning against this person? Where have you violated Scripture? Don't start with correcting them or judging them or holding them in contempt or praying that God will somehow take care of them. Start by changing you. And then, as your heart changes, pray for that person sincerely that they would come to the place of repentance, that your good deeds would be the very act that God would use to soften that heart and to show them their need of redemption, show them their need of salvation if they're not a believer, and that God could use you, which seems contrary to everything our culture teaches, returning evil with good, it may lead them into the kingdom of Almighty God. But if you treat them with equal contempt, it's like slamming the door of heaven in their face. You know why we so easily and readily want to mistreat our enemies? It's because we have forgotten how awesomely incredible God's grace has been in your life. The only reason that we are capable, remotely capable, of showing love to someone who has mistreated us is because of God's changing work through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives that tells us we are to love our neighbors, we are husbands to love our wives, and all of us are commanded to love our enemies. There is not one person on the face of this planet that is out from under God's commandment for you to love them. No one, not one. The question is, what are you going to do with this truth? Who is it in your life right now that you have gotten into... A duel of wills, arguments, social media posts, backstabbing, talking about them behind their back, whatever it is. Where do you need to repent and develop a heart like David that would say, even when given the opportunity, I won't retaliate against even my enemy because I love God supremely to the place that I will love others sacrificially. And sacrificially may mean that I die to my own pride. You see, when we see enemies, people who seek to destroy us or demoralize us or speak ill about us, whatever it may be, we must seek to mercifully love them and pray for them, do good to them, Feed them when they're hungry. Give them water when they're thirsty. Give them refuge when they're in danger. And we do it for the glory of Almighty God. Why? Because he's done the same for you. And he's done the same for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this example that we find in Scripture. It's it's a powerful account of a man like David who loved you and lived for you and leaves behind these examples that we find in your word of real situations that David found for himself in very problematic situations with a man who truly hated him. And God, I pray that through David's example, we would learn to be men and women that don't seek revenge. We don't seek to stand as someone's judge, and we don't seek ill will against anyone but instead we seek to love them and pray for them so that they may repent of their own sin so god use this account in our lives today help us to respond as you lead we pray this in jesus name amen pastor west is going to lead us in a song of response today and as you are singing this song as always you're free to come here to the front and pray if that is something that you believe the lord would have you to do you can pray where you are It might even be in a message like this that there is someone in this room or maybe someone at home or someone that you know somewhere that you need to be like David and you need to go find them. Because there's something, there's enmity between you and them and you need a message like this to repent of your own sin and seek that person out. Maybe right here in this room isn't the place to do it, but maybe it is. Maybe this is the time and place where you need to get that right. I pray you respond as the Lord leads you. You're visiting today. My wife and I will be available in the lobby afterwards. We would love to meet you and let's stand together and sing before we leave today.
1: Let's sing by our love. Let me also encourage you to follow the Holy Spirit's leading as we sing. Let's sing this together. As he shines through us We will come reaching With a song of healing And they will know us by our love The time is now Come church arise Love with his hand Before we are dismissed today, uh, Brother Harold Dotson is going to come and uh, make an announcement for. Him. Well, I don't know if Pastor can still hear us; he's escaped the room. But uh, this is his birthday
0: week, and if any of you have, uh, have been as a member of Grace, if you've a, let me try that again. If you've celebrated a birthday as a member of Grace, you have no doubt received a birthday card signed by the pastor. And so today, we'd like to do something. We'd like to present him a birthday card, reciprocating, telling him how much we thank him. For his loving kindness, his servant leadership, and uh, I apologize if not everyone got to and sign this card. We uh, had uh, Dave Sanders did a whole lot of legwork here, and we got as many people to sign this as possible, Pastor. We just want to wish you a happy birthday, and thank you for the loving leadership that you provide each year. God bless you. I
1: appreciate that.
0: I, I actually, I actually prayed I escaped that public, <laughs> knowledge, <laughs> but I appreciate that very much. Uh, many of you have already called, texted, and sent us cards and sent me cards. I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're good? God bless you. you. Yeah. Thank you.